Lake Mills, Jefferson County, 1900. During a relaxing day of duck hunting on Rock Lake, brothers Claude and Lee Wilson made a discovery of a lifetime. While rowing, their paddles continually struck something hard in the water, and after investigation, what they found would be a point of contention for over the next 120 years. Strange rock walls formed what appeared to be man-made pyramids under the waters of the lake, defying conventional wisdom and culminating in years of exploration by scientists, archaeologists, and charlatans for decades. A mystery, some say, yet remains unsolved today, leading many to believe that what lie under those waters could change human history as we know it. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Gein. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode 15 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with your other host, Mickey Sanders. What's going Hi. on, Mick? Mickey had a road trip to uh, Buffalo not too long ago, which... Yeah, that was, worked out uh, well. It was fun. The trip was fun. The trip was fun. The, the reason we went wasn't as yeah, much. It's been a horrible football season. They for- covered. They cover. Well, that's all that matters a lot of times. There time. was actually guys in the stands saying plus right. 11, plus 11. You know, when the season is going like it is, that's that's kind of the that's only, you that's hold the on saving to. grace, right? Yeah, yeah. Is uh, whatever the lines Sad are. Sad and pathetic. FanDuel. It's all about FanDuel. Yeah. Not a sponsor, by the way. Yeah. So we hope you've all had a wonderful fall so far. That appears to be over now. We were trick-or-treating in 70-degree weather with uh, my boys, and now... Here it is a couple weeks later, we have a couple inches of snow on the ground, and it is freezing, so we go right into a Wisconsin winter. It was a a couple days. I wish it would have been a couple weeks. It was a couple days between 70 and 25. Yes. Yeah. And snow. I want to talk about, uh, this thing caught my eye a couple days ago, I saw this, and it's actually from uh, an outfit, a radio station in New York, Rochester, New York. And uh, you can see our uh, reputation is preceding us here, where the headline is, arguably... Not... Not me and Scott, right, but the state us. of Wisconsin. Right, the state of Wisconsin as a whole. We have a bit of a reputation, but not as much as the state. It's better than this, I will say. Uh, overall, yeah, it probably is. <laughs> Arguably, the four worst serial killers in history all came from Wisconsin. So 
more ridiculous than some of the stuff we might talk right, about. Right, it's really something to hang our hats on. And this, as as Mickey said, this is we would disagree with this. I think a lot of you listening would probably disagree with this. So it starts out, quote, it's an alarming fact when it comes to serial killers, Wisconsin was home to some of the worst. Wisconsin may not hold the record for the state with the most serial killers. That unfortunate title historically goes to Alaska, of all places. But when it comes to gore, insanity, and pure evil, Wisconsin sure has dealt with a lot of it. So it goes on to talk about, obviously, the two that everybody brings up, Dahmer and Ed Gein. And then it goes into Walter Ellis, which you and I covered, Mickey, in, I think, I believe it was way back in episode four. Right, it was. And we both admitted, and I have also admitted, I have multiple serial killer encyclopedias and a shelf or two on my bookshelves about abnormal psychology and serial killer type people. And I had never, I had heard of him. I had no extensive knowledge of him, and you said yourself you'd never heard of him. No, before we covered him, and, and, and we're from Wisconsin, know him, is who the other person on here would be, along with Dahmer and da- David Gein, Spanbauer. And then the other is David Spanbauer. Yeah, um, and those, we've heard of Spanbauer because we're from Appleton, but Walter Ellis and his seven supposed or proven victims, most people have not heard of. So that's just. Yeah, right. Crazy. Seven and, and convicted of nine. If you haven't heard about El- Walter Ellis, the Milwaukee Northside Strangler. It is a fascinating story, by the way. I right. mean, it's, it's, it's got a lot of undertones to it in the backstory. So it speaks I def- to a lot of things that we deal with in our society sure. every day. Go back and listen to episode four. The other one here, David Spanbauer, who, if you, you're right, if you don't live in the Fox Cities, you may not be totally familiar with this guy. I'll, I'll just read, it's just a little paragraph they have about him here. They actually call him Frank Spanbauer, which I've never heard him referred to as. Frank Spanbauer. His name is Never. David Frank Spanbauer, and he's mm-hmm. normally referred to David Spanbauer, referred to as David Spanbauer. But this refers to him as Frank Spanbauer, and it says Frank Spanbauer was born in Appleton, Wisconsin, and his reign of terror started in 1960 with the rape of a 16-year-old girl and continued until he was arrested for the final time in 1994 for kidnapping, raping, and or killing numerous women and even two children throughout Illinois and Wisconsin. He's even, uh, he's, he's gone now. He passed away in prison, but he's, he's actually, um, linked to several unsolved murders as well in Wisconsin, including Lori Deppis, which is probably the most famous unsolved missing person we have in the Fox cities. here. And probably the reason anybody even in this area would have heard of him because she was such a famous missing person. You heard about her for so long so often, and then when they finally started linking her to him, that's how people even in this area would have heard, heard of David Spanbauer. Outside of this area, a lot of people wouldn't no, even know who no. the hell and, that and guy he, is. He did, he did kill somebody in Appleton, and he uh, Trudy Jeske was her name, and I, he murdered Cora Jones, which was a 12-year-old girl. I think she was from Wapaka. So his victims were unfortunately from this area. So Mickey's right. Outside of Appleton... Um, David Spamnauer may not be well-known, but that's definitely a name that we will cover uh, on Badger Bazaar uh, in due time. But I just wanted to mention that, that, you know, even though we might disagree with Spanbauer and Ellis being on this list, especially when you talk about people like the, you know, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, oh the Green River Killer, the Golden State Killer. I mean, there's been people who have who've killed many, many more people. And like we've said before on this podcast, the number of your victims isn't the be-all, end-all of how badass well, you Richard are. Well, Richard Ramirez, you know I mean? he had no 
there was no demographic. Right. Men, women of all ages. And, and then you got John Wayne Gacy. You've got uh, the BTK. I mean, some of these guys were just arrogant, condescending, no remorse carrying demons. They were psychopaths to the point where they their remorse was not a thing. Right. And I, not to say that the guys that we're talking about don't have that, but these other people are more, at least more well known, other than Gein and Dahmer. So, th- th- those kinds of lists are it, it, New Yorkers not necessarily knowing what they're talking about. True, and and the, the you know the reason being, you would not expect Spanbauer and Ellis to be on this list, but again, that is kind of the reputation that Wisconsin has when you're talking about this subject. You know, true crime, serial killers, that kind of subject, Wisconsin seems to be known for. And we've talked about this, you know, again, a lot of on the podcast in, in earlier episodes. And it's not always warranted. You know, we kind of joke about it, um, that it is. But Spanbauer and Ellis uh, don't deserve to be on this list over some of these much more heinous. Well, when you have, a, you have a cannibal and a grave digger who, it's legendary how his, everything was attributed to his mother who dominated his life even to his 50s. I mean, those are stories that are just creepy, beyond creepy, and that's where those legends start to evolve from. So when you've got two guys like that that everybody's heard of throughout the world, that's when people start going, all those people in that state are just crazy. Right. And maybe we are. But maybe not to that level in our defense. As a segue to this, I think what the, the most talked about show in the world right now is about one of these people. And that's obviously the Netflix series on Jeffrey Dahmer that uh, I believe is the most watched series ever on Netflix now. Over Tiger King? I think it surpassed. I, th- I believe, interestingly enough, it surpassed Making a Murder. About oh, another oh. Wisconsin. <laughs> Go figure. I'd rather. So there, there's a reason the reputation is I'm there. Sure, right? as we say, the thing is, as screwed up as that, I'd rather have that be the case than Tiger King. I got sucked into that. I was told to watch it. I did. I, I binged watched it. But then they had another series, and I'm like, I, that's a soap opera. There's another one? There's like I a Tiger think King there's two? something else that came because he got out of jail or something. I don't even care enough to know enough to, to talk about it. But <laughs> I'd actually rather have the real life serial killer stuff than that crap, which is real life. But that was crazy I th- at a I different think, level. I think the thing that, and this has been said before, the thing that helped Tiger King was COVID. Right. right. Every, and it was during when That's everybody was sure. locked down. Right. But they were just bored to death or something Man, did to that do. that go viral <laughs> faster than overnight? Well, you know, when you're in your house and all you have is is social your media own, and, and, and your own and your own yeah yeah your own crazy. Let's go find a different crazy so we can feel better about the crazy we were living in. And then you just start living in an echo chamber, and somebody's you know says watch Tiger King. So of course everybody freaking did. And all the crazy in your family in your house goes, we can watch this together. And you know, and then maybe the crazy in the house kind of diminishes a little bit. I I guess I understand the logic. Monster. The Jeffrey Dahmer story. He used the word monster way too much right. for that shit. It is. And, the, you know, and there's, it's been picked up for two more seasons, you know, monster. So. Oh, so they'll it's cover gonna other be, It's going to be two killers. other, it's gonna, they're going to cover two other people. Oh, I like that. People. But the monster, quote unquote monster series has been picked up for two more seasons. Well, I'm dark and twisted and weird, so I, I kind of actually like that because I think that was really well done. I know people who thought it was so well done they couldn't even get through it because it gave them nightmares or made them sick to their stomach. Oh, really? Yeah. See, I, I, I know some, you know, screwed up people, I guess. I think... I'm sorry to anybody who's listening 
that I'm referring to. I was just joking. Well, and there's going to be spoilers. We're going to talk about it. It's a. It's no, I mean, I just insulted some of my friends. I think. <laughs> it's you know, it's we're going to talk about it for a little bit here. It's it's the most watched TV show in the world. We're obviously. Uh, it's a subject matter that we deal in. So if you haven't seen it, and if you plan on watching it, you might want to skip ahead for a few minutes here. Um, but I think it was really well done in a couple of factions, and then some some not so much. Nobody's better than Evan Peters. Evan Peters is wonderful. Not above criticism, though, and I'll go into that as well. Well, I mean, he's an amazing actor. He's and he, wonderful. And he chooses these dark roles as he's a big, he was a staple in American Horror Story for for the longest time. But... Right, as you said, any, anybody can deserve some criticism, I suppose. I think I think one thing that this did really well was that it it for long stretches. It's a ten episode series, if you don't know. For long stretches, it was really uncomfortable to watch, but they did it without a lot of gore in it. There was not a lot of gore. No, and that's and that's that's what was weird to me to my friends who said they either got nightmares or just couldn't get through it. A lot of it was led to the imagination, right? Because it, right, you, it wasn't real graphic, but it would cut you off right before, and then it leads your imagination into that. It was really well done that way, I think. I I, I agree, and I think a lot of the a lot of it is is with Evan Peters' performance too, which was. Oh. He, Stoic. he was so creepy. Oh, and, and he's he was, just so, no mannerisms, no emotion, just, like, you didn't even see his head move when he talked. He was, he nailed it. I didn't see him anymore. I saw Jeffrey Dahmer. The, well, it's, and that, this is one of the things that I that I wanted to bring up. His, I will say this, his performance, I think he's the, the best actor we have in the world right now. I will, really? I, I, really? I, I, I 100% I thought I, you were going to go another direction. There's so. nothing he can't do. Uh, right. And although he's, he's even comedic because he was in the office. Yeah, he he, he, he he was he was uh, Michael Scott's nephew, and Michael Scott actually spanks him at one point. So <laughs> he can even do comedic, comedic performances. So. I think he's he's, and that's what makes him so good. He's one of these rare actors that can do any role. He kind of gravitates and chooses a lot the of these dark side, things, right. which I think he does really good at. And the performance of this, I think, was very good. What I do have criticism about in regards to Jeffrey Dahmer... Um, I'm calling him after this and telling him that you said this. What, well, it, it, it I don't even know that it's him. It might be how the role was written. I don't know. But first of all, the accent, the northern accent, the Wisconsin accent. Yeah, that he, you're Jeffrey right. Dahmer had a, had a slight accent, and you can pick it up sometimes when you hear him right. talking. It was not as overtly profound as what it was in this movie. And he's like the only one that has the Northern accent in the whole movie. Like right. nobody else has it. You know, that's true. I didn't even think of yeah, that. But, but it's so profound. It, because it kind they, of, they want us to sound like we're, you know, ain't it, and we, it, it was very Fargo-esque. And we, yeah, right. You know, exactly. And that's not how Dahmer sounds. We actually articulate our words a little more than, I think that's part of our accent. And I, I don't, Dahmer did not sound unintelligent or uneducated exactly, when he right. talked. And the accent that he gave, but I think as an actor, you kind of have to focus on something and exaggerate a little bit just to create the character. Sure, sure. And, and so I get what you're saying, but I get also why he might have done that. And the other thing is when you, when you said that Dahmer didn't sound and did not sound unintelligent. Right. There were there were times in this show where he um, the portrayal of Dahmer was almost childlike. It was almost goofy. You know, it's, it's. I got like a. I almost got like a Steve Urkel vibe. He seemed very simple in this movie. Jeffrey Dahmer does sound educated. 
He does sound intelligent. There's lots and lots. I wouldn't know that. Of, I wouldn't say he sounds educated. He doesn't sound uneducated, which I, I know that's you know splitting. We don't want to give him compliments, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's true. I don't we don't want to give him compliments. Not but, trying to defend him, but right. But I, I mean, I think he was a simple person, and I think maybe that's like any any actor is going to choose choose an angle and go with it. You know, it's like a caricature. When somebody draws it, they're going to focus on certain things, and that's that, that's the choice they make. I think the fact that Dahmer, so I mean, he he knew how to use his words. He had he had a fairly extensive vocabulary. He didn't sound stupid. But as far as the childlike thing, I think that happens a lot with serial killers. That that's where they're trapped. They're trapped in their childhood because that's what makes them what they become. So, I think maybe he was focusing on that because. I didn't. I didn't see that at all, especially the Urkel thing. But, but if your if your assessment is accurate, it would make sense because a serial killer is, like I said, who they become often. I guess always possibly is based on their childhood and their horrible upbringing that they probably had. So it would make sense that he would have those childlike mannerisms because he's still trapped in those times. Sure, but and and I think that's and again we get into that in the Ellis episode. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that Dahmer had that kind of a upbringing. His parents didn't get along, obviously. They mm-hmm. fought. They argued. His mom was a drug abuser. She got out of that. She got away from that, obviously. And his dad seemed to be fairly supportive. He, he was kind of an asshole sometimes, but yeah. I mean, it wasn't... Oh, which dad I, isn't an asshole? Sure. Yeah, I don't... I don't... I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't have an issue with Evan Peters' portrayal or performance, I should say. Well, like I have say, a little the, bit of an issue with the accuracy of it. I'm not sure it was 100% Jeffrey Dahmer. But, but I but. think any actor has to choose a lane and, and go with it. Sure. So, I mean, I get what you're saying. I, I Some of that didn't occur to me, which surprised me a little bit because I like to overanalyze, if you haven't noticed. But uh, your angle is it's, it's refreshing, I guess, but I don't know that I'd completely agree with it, but I, I guess I can understand why you'd feel that way. And maybe that's was just that was just Evan Peters' portrayal of what he learned. And that guy, I believe that guy researches the hell out of anything before he delves into it so that's just the angle he took but i can understand what you're saying pace wise i was i was a little uh perturbed with it seemed to drag in a lot of spots and i was kind of wanting something to happen this is a 10 episode series as i said it probably could have been a seven episode a series. a lot of dialogue a yeah. lot yeah and, and sometimes dialogue is good because sure. you learn stuff that you're way. developing characters too yeah so and, and there's some there's some issues that i have with the writing aspect too but i, I mean i don't need to, to to nitpick about this but you know and you do like to be a big i, I do i do when i'm, it comes I'm critical I, you know mickey and i talk about this a lot off mic i'm not a big movie guy anymore i right. used to be or or even tv yeah. right i used to be but, uh, but your points are legit, so it's not like you're just going, it was dumb. I don't like it because it was dumb. Which, then don't talk to me if that's all you got. <laughs> no, it certainly wasn't dumb. I do wonder, um, kind of going back to the writing angle, why they harped so much on the racial aspect. That was a big deal in the Dahmer case, no question about it. But kind of the portrayal of the cops and how, you know, the two cops who gave uh, the 14-year-old boy back to Dahmer and how they were getting like an award and they kind of threw the police department under the under the bus saying that they, they rewarded these guys for a job well done when they didn't. That's not true. Th- those guys were fired. Those two cops were fired by the Milwaukee Police Department and they sued for wrongful termination and they won. And they, and they got their jobs back. That's not, it's nothing to do 
with the Milwaukee Police Department. But the racial undertones obviously were real. Again, we talked about this in the in the Walter Ellis episode. They were, uh, which was happening at the same time, by the way. Right. Well, it and, was and a real thing. In like the seventies and eighties, that seems where like the most notorious serial killers were going on. Right. Throughout our country, if not the world. So I just, you know, it was obvious the the narrative that they were playing in the show. So why have the cops like make phone calls to the family? of the 14-year-old hateful racist phone calls and then they like show them sitting on the desk like they're in middle school yeah i mean what well, that yeah, really that i agree i mean why are you doing that you're it's, it's almost like saying you're not confident enough that you've already made the point so you have to do something almost cartoonish to get it through I, that never happened so i, I mean I to write that in you know in certain aspects in this show just seemed a little self-conscious to me in terms of like the there's an agenda yes yeah, yeah a little bit you know I, I i think i'm sounding like i'm nitpicking here it's a great show highly recommend it you never sound like that otherwise so this is so <laughs> out of character if if you didn't watch it because you're you're you don't like horror movies or you don't like blood and guts and gore and stuff don't let that uh keep you away from this it's not it's it was not well graphic, done it's not gory but i get uh, more than any other series, and I, the people I'm talking about that I know like these dark things. So for them to say they couldn't, they didn't want to get through it because it gave them nightmares or whatever. I, I guess it's a testament to how well it was done. Even though, like you say, there's always things you can you know criticize or just break apart a little bit. But I think I believe it was really well done. It maybe have been stretched out a little longer, but it's worth watching at least the first few episodes and if you like it you continue on because you, you, you at least you relearn a lot of stuff that you might have forgotten about it's been a hot topic on social media since it came out and uh, especially since they um, they did a, uh, announce that they're gonna make make two more seasons of this so there's speculations. I didn't know that that's awesome speculations that are already about who who the other ones are gonna be about so so and and one one other thing about Dahmer the show and also with Again, an outfit from New York. This is from the New York, the New York Post. They want to be us. I guess so. They're really into Wisconsin and our penchant for killing people. Maybe it's an ex-Wisconsinite too. Who knows? So here's from the the New York Post: Jeffrey Dahmer murders fueling sick Milwaukee tourism trend. So tourism in Milwaukee has skyrocketed since the Dahmer show hit Netflix. The article says a Netflix-driven surge of interest in cannibalistic killer Jeffrey Dahmer is boosting tourism in Milwaukee. Ryan Murphy's wildly popular show for the streamer Dahmer, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, has two crime buffs itching to retrace the killer's creepy footsteps in the city once better known as the home of Laverne and Shirley. (laughs) Those were the days, right? That's the river. Oh, nice. Their presence is highly welcomed by Bob Weiss operator of Milwaukee's Cream City Cannibal Walking Tour. Bob is also, we had we had spoken about in our last episode when we talked about Shaker's Cigar Bar. He's the owner of Shaker's Cigar Bar, and they do tours at Shaker's pretty much every day, ghost tours. We mentioned the Cream City we, Walking yes, Tour. Yes, yes, and this is, this is one they do because... God, it's almost like we know what we're talking about sometimes. <laughs> because Dahmer was a regular at his bar. So he, he does these tours now there, where... Yeah. You know, he takes he takes tourists along to the sites in Milwaukee that Dahmer used to go. Quote, it is in- incredibly popular now, said Weiss, owner of Hangman Tours, who added that while he dealt with considerable backlash upon debuting the dubious offering over a decade ago, 
The only problem he's been facing lately now is to handle an overwhelming number of new bookings. While plenty of domestic Dahmer diehards are flocking to his old stomping grounds, Weiss noted that Europeans are the ones he sees mostly nowadays. We have people that fly in from Barcelona, Frankfurt, no to take our tour, Weiss said, noting that nearly 90% of his customers are female, often aged between mid-20s and early 40s. Nearly everyone has been curious but respectful, and if they're not, Weiss said, buffoon-like behavior is not tolerated. What's funny is that's the same exact demographic that listens right. to our podcast. Right. I think true crime in general is heavily female. Bob Weiss goes on to say, quote, We don't glorify anything that Dahmer did. We don't make light of anything. There are some significant lessons that I think society needs to be reminded of. Weiss said, noting that FBI officials and other members of law enforcement have taken the tour as part of their studying of serial killers. Good old Bob Weiss still doing the tours in uh, Dahmer's old neighborhood. Well, and I mean, people, that that's another thing, and we won't delve into this too much further, but people even criticize Dahmer's dad for writing a book and taking advantage of the situation and making money off it. I understand the point. I do. If something's already happened and you want to get the point out to, to inform people, I understand why people will criticize and be so quick to, to jump on the person. But if they want to make a point and they make money in the process, that's kind of just part of the ride a lot of times. People are just so quick to criticize someone because they make money. It's like, well, they, they're trying to send a message, though, too. And that kind of gets lost in the whole commercialism of it. But I get a little tired of that argument, I guess. Think of the hell he went through. Right. You know, he didn't, he didn't, I mean, he didn't kill anybody. No, didn't, you know, sometimes it's maybe not the parents' fault. You know, sometimes things just go haywire. And at some point you're an adult and you have to accept responsibility for your own existence. You know, if he made a couple dollars off it, maybe that's his way to deal with uh, it. I'll say this. He, he had his shortcomings. You know, I think some of that was portrayed in that show. But We're he all was, human. He was a better dad than most serial killers like that would have had. Right, I'll say that. Right. And speaking of his dad, this article goes on to say, quote, since the Dahmer series released, the 86-year-old father of the killer, Lionel Dahmer, has had, quote, fans, unquote, of his son appear on his Ohio property. Some are dressing up as Dahmer for Halloween and throwing parties in honor of the psycho. That's so, where it gets... We can't get enough of this stuff. Well, really. and then I mean, people, people who want to marry and date these guys once they've been in prison, that's, that's the testament of human beings that, okay, people, gather yourself up, look in the mirror, and realize what you're doing. You're idolizing someone who did some horrific things, and maybe you're going in the wrong path. Maybe find someone else to idolize. You know, people are stupid. I don't know if you knew that or not, but they can be. That's for sure. So we head to Lake Mills. Lake Mills, Wisconsin, right in between Madison and Milwaukee. I was just there a couple weeks ago. Actually took took the fam to uh, Ashland State Park and had no idea we were going to be talking about this. Coming up, so I got a, a close-hand view of uh, some of the things we're going to be talking about so today. You're psychic, I'd, you don't even know. I guess so. That's I'd, weird. I'd been there in the past, but it'd been a few years. So Lake Mills is right off of I-94, right in between Milwaukee and Madison. A little, actually, closer to Madison than Milwaukee. Settled and chartered in 1836. Remember that date? That comes into play later. And incorporated as Lake Mills in the 1850s. So named by Joseph Keys, 
who was the founder of the town, and because he ran uh, sawmills and gristmills powered by Rock Lake, which borders Lake Mills directly to its west. Now, Rock Lake, I think, is is the point of discussion here, right? Now, this is it's not a big lake, about 1,371 acres with a max depth of 61 feet, which is not shallow, really. 61 feet is fairly deep, but 1,371 acres is not... Uh, very big. Comparatively, Lake Winnebago is over 137,000 acres, but it's only 21 feet. That's a max depth. So Lake Winnebago, fairly shallow. I mean, you can literally fit over 100 rock lakes in Lake Winnebago. So we're not we're not talking about it. No a, one's ever done that, for the record. That would be, if somebody could do that, that would be an episode that's that we would have to do. Powers, that's supernatural. <laughs> so, you know, it's about one mile by two miles, roughly. So we're not talking about a gigantic lake here. But now this area uh, has a massive Native American history to it. Aztalan State Park, which I just mentioned, is one of the, if not the greatest archaeological discovery ever in Wisconsin. Aztalan, which translates as the ancient city, which is three miles away from, three miles away from the lake itself. Rock Lake is adjacent to the town of Lake Mills. So the, both these cities are right around this lake. So Aztalan is the, the state park is a former native settlement. It's a, a fortified town, really, from well over a thousand years ago. You know, it, it features multiple mound pyramids, uh, and we'll get more into that later. This area is steeped in native history and legend, including that of Rock Lake. Named by Judge Nathaniel Heyer, who formerly surveyed the site. That's where the name Aztalan comes from. Now, the mysteries of Rock Lake, which used to be called Lake Tyranina by the natives, begins in 1900 when at least the modern mysteries that we're talking about today begin. When in 1900, a couple of guys were out duck hunting in the lake, in Rock Lake, and they hit something with their paddles. Right, so they're out on a boat, they put their oars in the water, and they hit something, and they kept hitting it. Now, there was a bit of a drought that year, which had lowered the water levels in the lake. It actually cleared it up a little bit as well. That lake is, is usually pretty murky, pretty dirty. But because there was a bit of a drought that year, the water level was lower, and it was a little clear. So the brothers, these duck hunters, Claude and Lee Wilson, they kept hitting their paddles on these rocks in the lake. And they're in the middle of the lake, so they're like, what in the hell? is going on here. So they look over and they see these big rock structures in the lake. And, you know, they're not supposed to be there. So, you know, they investigate. Apparently they see this stone structure below them. And because the water obviously was more clear than normal, uh, they investigate a bit more and they see what looks like rock walls sloping up to an apex, kind of like a pyramid. And they explore some more and they find apparently two more of these structures in the water. They described them as tent-like structures, about 100 feet long, made of small rocks. Now, at the time, this is in 1900, it became a bit of a story in the area, right? Big rock structures in Rock Lake. Uh, And some journalists in Milwaukee found out about it, and they were going to come, and they were going to put together a dive, and they were going to explore it, and and which has become a pattern, really, over the last 100 years or so. When they're going to explore it, the drought ends, the rains come, (laughs) murky's up the... Murky's up the lake, and they're in it. They're not able to find it again. So those rock structures have disappeared. They can't find them. And in the meantime, many other visitors claim to have caught their fishing lines, and even commercial fishing places claim to have had their nets caught on these structures. So it's not just these duck hunters that have had these issues. Right. So for the next thirty years, it becomes—I uh, don't want to say it becomes forgotten, 
it's known, like like Mickey said, fishermen get their lines caught in it all the time. Commercial fishermen got their nets torn up in it. So it is something that's known about in the lake. But for the most part, people back then, they just believed that they were a pile of rocks. And they thought it was left over from construction of the railroad tracks, which were built on the far south end of the, of the lake. So really, for 30 years after this thing was found in 1900, it wasn't really that big of a deal. People knew they were there, but again, they thought they were either natural or they thought that it was basically fill thrown in from the railroad being built. So fast forward to 1936, when a local writer, Victor Taylor, starts digging a bit deeper into this. He hears about these supposed rock structures in the lake, so he starts digging into this. He's a local author, journalist, scriptwriter, radio host. This guy knew Lake Mills. So it's in an area that we said is, is steeped in Native American history, which there's many effigy effigy mounds around. And and Victor Taylor knew about this. He apparently he apparently heard of old Native histories of stone steeples at the bottom of Rock Lake. So now he's thinking, you know, this this lake must be pretty sacred to the ancient natives that were here, going back centuries. So he also goes back and he finds Claude and Lee Wilson, the two men that that initially found the structures um, when they were duck hunting in the lake. And they recount their story to him. And obviously the legend now is reborn. It's been 30 years or so. It was kind of forgotten. Victor Taylor comes around. He starts digging into it a little more. He talks to some local ancient native historians and uh, finds that there might, there might be something more to this story. So now the, the legend of the Rock Lake Pyramids is reborn. And it culminates in a new story that went around the state on February 13th of 1936. And it says, quote, Three pyramids in Rock Lake may be historic clue. This is from the Oshkosh Northwestern, and this was, this was put out through the whole state. Quote, three stone pyramids on the bottom of Rock Lake in Jefferson County may undergo scientific investigation for possible discoveries about the ancient Aztelan Indian civilization, which reached its height in North America about the year 1066. No one knows whether the structures were built by man or formed by nature, but if they can be traced to Indian stock, they may give a clue as to whether the old Indian legend about the 16 years drought was fact or fiction. The drought was supposed to have occurred around the year 1300. So basically what this is saying is that there is legend that around the year 1300, there was a 16-year drought, but that's never been able to be proven. So what they were saying in 1936 was that these pyramids at the bottom of a lake could possibly prove that that drought did happen because when that drought happened, the lake was drained, right? There was no water there. And these pyramids were built by the people who inhabited the area, basically as offerings to a rain god. They became sacrificial pyramids, was the hypothesis. According to Old Lake Mills Chamber of Commerce website, prayers were answered with great waters that ended up covering the pyramids, flooding the area, and this created the lake called Tyranina, meaning sparkling water. So the article goes on, quote, Recently, however, Victor Taylor, associated with a government writing project, learned about the pyramids from Claude Wilson and started an investigation. Taylor is compiling information on Indian folklore. He hired three Lake Mills youths for diving operations. All of them reported finding similar things, that the pyramids are approximately 20 feet at the base, between 20 and 25 feet high, that a fourth of the structure conical in shape is of equal height. So, okay. So apparently he finds these structures after they've been missing for 36 years. Uh, Victor Taylor finds these and he hires children 
to go down and and look at these. They don't have any idea what they're looking at. They did quote diving operations. Okay, did they have? They didn't have any masks on. Did they have scuba equipment? Did they go down in a gulp of air? What you know? What exactly did he um, do to explore <laughs> these? What did he do to look at these? That he came to the opinion that they were likely uh, ancient pyramids. So now what it does say is it does say that he took this information to Charles Brown, who was the director of the Wisconsin Historical Society Museum, and he later founded the Wisconsin Archaeological Society, but, quote, got no further, period, unquote. So he did take the information, and he did go to the people that you want to go to, right? He went to the state. He went to the State Historical Society. He went to the the future founder of the Wisconsin Archaeological Society, but they didn't give him the answers that he wanted. So now we go on to the next year, 1937. The story gained steam again when a diving pioneer, Max Eugene Knoll, another first for Wisconsin, a Milwaukee native, and basically the inventor of Heliox. And scuba, no, scuba equipment. Scuba equipment. He invented scuba. He had a doctor that helped him with the Heliox, Dr. Edgar and... So basically, he's like the forefather of modern-day scuba, scuba diving. equipment. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this guy was a major deal in Wisconsin. The, and you know, from you know, again, you, who who thinks of scuba diving in freaking Milwaukee? Sure, because right? we're right near the ocean. No, <laughs> we got some Great Lakes, but nobody's scuba diving right. in the Great Lakes. So, so yeah. this guy basically it's invents amazing how modern-day scuba diving in this state. Uh, he invents, with the help of a Dr. Heliox, which is the low-density gas mixture of helium and oxygen, That's which is the guy. used in the tanks. And he, he was a doctor at Marquette University School of Medicine. Dr. Edgar End is actually the one who who invented that. But scuba was invented by this Max Eugene Knoll. He was he used it to test experimental new diving equipment. This was the birth of, the, of this equipment, like you said. And he would go on to set world record for deepest dive that same year. 420 feet, reaching the bottom of Lake Michigan. So this guy was... <laughs> was it the bottom? I know he got 420 feet. Was that the bottom? That's what they said. That's what I read, yeah, which is crazy. So, yeah, I mean, he's still known today as one of the great pioneers in, in modern day... He started. He invented scuba. Deep sea diving in... Uh, from Wisconsin. A native of Milwaukee. Why not? You know? So he, he, he came in on the scene here, and he did research into these rock lake pyramids because now this is kind of gaining a little bit of steam, right? Why are there pyramids in the middle of a lake in Wisconsin? So he starts doing this research and he actually first he flew over a number of times the lake with a pilot to see if they could see them from the air, which they could not. So next they they basically went in the lake and tried to find these things. And what they did is, is basically they took two boats and dragged a weighted cable between them and whenever it got snagged on something, uh, Mr. Scuba would go down and, and try to find what it got snagged on. So now after two months, two months of this, so I mean, they, they put their time into this, right? Two months of dragging a not very big lake, uh, they, they apparently found the structures. And he wrote, he, he wrote a letter to Victor Taylor. On October 12, 1937, as you said, he wrote to Victor Taylor. No wrote... Quote, the pyramid rises up from a 36-foot bottom to its upper base, which is 7 feet from the surface, therefore being 29 feet high. A deposit of ooze has collected at the base, and penetration of this with my hand revealed that the structure continued on down. The pyramid is in the form of a truncated cone. Approximate dimensions 
diameter upper base 3 feet, diameter bottom 18 feet, altitude 29 feet. This construction is apparently of smooth stone set in mortar. It is covered with greenish thin scum that rubs off, period, unquote. So he finds these structures that were found in 1900, now the one we're in 1937, and he would often talk of his intentions of going back there. He, re- he reported that it looked like an upside-down ice cream cone, tall, conical st- stone shape that he believed was man-made. So his intentions were always to go back there, but he never actually got back there. So again, it kind of goes quiet. So it's just this kind of quiet mystery, right? Are these structures in Rock Lake pyramids? Are they natural structures? What are they? And if they're pyramids, who were they built by and why? So now real archaeologists did look into this. The State Historical Society and the Archaeological Society did do dives to check this out. And we'll go into this, you know, their findings a little bit later. But in 1970, now we're 35 years later, an article shows up in Skin Diver magazine, which was a legit scuba magazine at the time. Sounds like a porn. Right. Well, so does the ooze coming out of the bottom and penetrating with my hands. That's how my brain works a lot of that. I'm like, what what am I reading here? So an article shows up in in Skin Diver magazine. They they were a legit magazine. They're gone now. I think they went to Funked in the early 2000s. So they were around for a while. But they published an article in January of 1970 by a dive named Jack Kennedy, who states that he did a dive in 1967 with two other divers, and they found what they said was an elongated pyramid, like a tent. If you think of a tent, a long tent that had a flat top on it, so it didn't come to a full apex. It had a flat top on it. He also described what he came upon as a slanted wall of grape-sized rocks and a low platform rising about five feet from the lake bed. Grapefruit-sized rocks. Yeah and was roughly 20 feet by 40 feet, and that they believed they were built by the Aztecs. Now, why would the Aztecs have built these? Let's talk about Aztalan. So now, what is now Aztalan State Park? sits just four miles from Rock Lake along the Crawfish River. The ruins of this ancient settlement was originally found in 1835 and first surveyed and studied in 1836. It's believed that it was occupied for thousands of years, with the height of the activity from roughly 900 AD to 1200 AD. There's numerous platform mounds, which would have been used for religious and ceremonial purposes. On one would have stood a large temple with a sacred fire, One mound would have held the home of the chief or the leader, and one was a large burial mound. And it was fortified by a massive stockade wall, which has been reconstructed, um, but it would have been mortared with clay back in the day. And and again, you can go to Aztalan. You can see these now. You can stand on these pyramids. They're still there. They have the whole thing laid out. You can see what the mounds were. You can see where the plaza was. Uh, It's a great place. If you're interested in this, if you've never been to Aztalan State Park before, I highly recommend a visit. It's not very big. You know, the actual village, which was the fortified village with the stockade walls, is, I don't know, 30 acres maybe. It's not real big. Uh, you can walk it. But, you know, they, they have reconstructed some of these stockade walls. And when this was found in 1835, this crazy thing is is that some of the stockades were still up. We're talking hundreds of years. Maybe, a th- I mean, think of those stockade walls are still up when this thing is found in 1835. Now, this what had been since sold for farmland, and a lot of this stuff was plowed over 
This is by the federal government, you know, not not plowed by the federal government, obviously, but sold. And basically, it was finally bought back by, um, I think it's called Friends of Aztalan Park. That's what it's called now. It was bought back by a private entity and preserved. And that is what we see today is Aztalan State Park. You can see these mounds. And it looks very Aztecian. You know, we've all seen what the Aztecs uh, made, what they built. Very large stone temples, right? The pyramids are mound pyramids. They're built with earth, obviously. But they it does look very Aztecian, which is why it's called Aztalan. Because as Mickey said, uh, the scientists that initially surveyed it, who called it Aztalan, um, called it that because of the Aztec tradition that their ancient home was from somewhere in the north. That's a rumor now. It's never been proven. But Aztec legend said that their their ancient homeland was somewhere in the north. And this guy thought that maybe this possibly was it. So they called it Aztalan. There's also evidence found in Aztalan suggesting human sacrifice and cannibalism, which were traits reminiscent of the Aztec culture. And there were even remains of a young woman found in a burial mound dubbed Princess of Aztalan. She was adorned in clam shell beads, some coming from as far away as the Gulf of Mexico. So a lot of these stories, some of the evidence might make it true or not, but th- there's enough that people will lump onto and, and make the story. Well, then that that's you know that's all true. I mean, you can go there today. the 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 museum is there. You can go in the museum, and her the princess of Aztalan, her burial mound, is there, and that has been excavated. They actually found her body, and it was adorned in all these clamshells. Um, like you said, from from as far away as the Gulf of Mexico, and and now that area is actually known known as the northern outpost of Cahokia, right? Which was a massive pre-Columbian city of Mississippian culture, near what is now known as St. Louis. So this culture did exist, and th- there is remnants of of it being around this area. But whether these some of these legends are based on reality or not. It, just comes from speculation and for, for the most part. So the the Aztec connection, we now know today, at least is what we're told by mainstream archaeology, uh, is not true. That it was actually, Aztalan was actually built, like Mickey said, by the Mississippians, which were a, a, a completely different and earlier Native American civilization that flourished in the Midwest and Southeast. And, and Aztalan... Um, was kind of a satellite city of Cahokia, which was the uh, the Mississippian culture. Their biggest city was in what is now St. Louis, and there, you know, I've read that that thing was as that city was as big as London. Like right. that was a massive city, like 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 a hub, especially for this continent, one of the biggest in the air, in the whole continent. Right. You know, we're we're talking over a thousand years ago. Right. A city so, as big as London in the middle of our country so civilizations weren't plentiful so a a city that big would have been one of if not the biggest in this continent for sure so the the story about the aztecs uh building aztalan we're told by archaeology is not true because it's a completely different um civilization it's much earlier than the aztecs but the interesting thing in my mind and this is the kind of stuff that i like i like about um i like learning about you know, history as we're told, history of we've learned in our lifetimes and, you know, generations before our lifetimes, isn't cut and dry. So mainstream archaeology tells Things us... Things weren't documented as well as they should have been, or as well as we, as diligently as we do well, now. I, I don't think we know as much as we think we do. 
Well, right. and that's why shows like The Curse of Oak Island and Skinwalker Ranch and a lot of these other shows that are just trying to disprove what we do know, and I think that's going to lead into our conversation at the end about just being open-minded and, and knowledgeable enough, ev- evolved enough to understand that whether we believe it or not, these kinds of things can be discussed. You know, and, and I would I would like to, you know, possibly bring somebody on like Scott Walter, if we could, who does podcasts such as this and talk about this because, you know, we're told so matter-of-factly that the Aztecs had nothing to do with Aztalan, but also the people who built Aztalan disappeared in roughly around the year 1200. We have no idea what happened to them. Still today, science has no idea what happened to the Mississippian culture that built Aztalan. But the Aztecs pop up in about 1300. Where did they come from? But they're so confident that the Aztecs, who say they were from the north, right? Right. They say that their traditional ancient homes were from the north. They pop up in about 1300 when the people that built Aztalan disappeared off the face of the earth around 1200. So how, how are we so confident that they're not... I don't want to say one in the same, because they're probably not, but how do we know that the Aztecs, we're so confident that the Aztec culture has no connection at all to the Mississippians that were up here. You would think they would have developed from that, just evolved or or migrated, whatever the right term would be. Yeah, you think they'd have a link to each other. It's something that that, uh, I don't think science is 100% certain of, although they talk like they do, you can't say two people that are so similar have no connection when one disappeared before the other one existed and we can't, we have Especially no idea so, about how. so close to each other in, in proximity. As far as vicinity, they were awfully close. So it's weird that one died off and the other started up right around the same time, right around the same area. But as much as we're starting to learn about our whole universe, as far as the math, and as far as the technology showing us pictures, it's crazy how much we still don't know about our own planet. So this article that was in Skin Diver magazine, after this... this <laughs> Makes this, me laugh uh, every time you say that. This article that was in Skin Diver magazine in 1970, after about 35 years or so of this subject being quiet, kicked off a huge new frenzy of investigations and investigators. And, you know, this is when... I think we have to start talking about what's known as pseudo-archaeology, where people kind of start bringing in these what is reported to be archaeological claims, but they're more they're based in fantastic reality rather than uh, being soundly grounded in science. You know, a lot of that is is based on what could be. Is this possible? Just superlatives, and, and which to some degree, I like the idea of thinking outside the box and recognizing that the world is not flat because the first guy who said that it wasn't everyone thought was crazy sure and as we discussed in our uh, wisconsin death trip even not that long ago when you mentioned this kind of stuff you were put in an asylum and considered insane but i think as we've mentioned before we're, we're to the point now where we can understand that these might be a possibility and i love that i love that thought and when you look at you know what's popular today in terms of shows like ancient aliens uh, Skinwalker Ranch, right. and a lot of these things, which real archaeologists, if I can use that term, would refer to them as pseudo-archaeologists, not based in scientific fact. Sure, but isn't everything science if you're researching it? I agree. It's it's not a proven... Science is meant to evolve. 
Yes. Right. And, and those and, that say that it's not. It's are, not a proven science, these pseudo, and, and that pseudo archaeology is, is kind of a detrimental term. It's used that way. But until things are proven, it's kind of speculated, and that's how it should be. That's what science is. But that doesn't mean that it's not right or that it's not onto something. As as, well, and we we've we've talked in the past in in episodes that we've done about paranormal issues, that people refer to to you know the paranormal as a pseudoscience. Right, and it's it's meant to be disparaging, and and I understand that. Just because we don't understand it now doesn't mean it won't be something that we know as fact later on. Everything has to start out being speculative. So one of the people that have have done a lot of work on the Rock Lake pyramids. Uh, over the last 40 years or so, is somebody that scientists, archaeologists uh, would consider a quote-unquote pseudo-archaeologist. Let's introduce you to Frank Joseph. Now, Frank is an author of many books. That's what he's known as. It's Frank Joseph Collins, but he actually... He writes under Frank under Frank Joseph. And we'll get into why his name was changed, actually. He's written many books, including... The Destruction of Atlantis, Compelling Evidence of the Sudden Fall of the Legendary Civilization, Atlantis in Wisconsin, New Revelations about the Lost Sunken City, Edgar Cayce's Atlantis, Lost Pyramids of Rock Lake, Wisconsin's Sunken Civilization, uh, The Atlantis Encyclopedia, Atlantis and Other Lost Worlds, Atlantis and 2012, The Science of the Lost Civilization and the Prophecies of the Maya. There is a big Atlantis pattern. In a lot of his work. Long story short about the Rock Lake Pyramids. Frank Joseph says that the Rock Lake Pyramids were built by Atlanteans, people from Atlantis. He believes that the copper mines of northern Wisconsin and the UP were actually mined by the Atlanteans like five, 6,000 years ago. Right, And we have Copper Culture State Park, just, what, an hour north of us in Oconto. Big copper culture, obviously, copper mining uh, in the area, in the UP and in northern Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, the UP's even got an area called Copper Country, or Copper County. So Frank Joseph believed that the Atlanteans came here to mine the copper in the UP and northern Wisconsin, and they would then bring the copper to Rock Lake, where which basically was a trading post. Now, Rock Lake, if you remember, as we mentioned earlier, was called by the natives Tyranina. And Tyranina coincidentally, or maybe not, depending on what you believe, was also the name of the port at the, whether you believe it's mythical or not, city of Atlantis. So the Atlanteans, according to Frank Joseph, would would bring the copper that they mined in the UP in northern Wisconsin to Rock Lake, or Tyranina, to trade with various peoples who would come to Rock Lake for that purpose. And then they would take the copper, go down the Mississippi, into the Gulf of Mexico, and the copper would then be shipped out through the rest of the world, and which created the what we know as the Copper Age and the Bronze Age of the world, kind of progressing humanity. So what he also says is that uh, they would bury, so the Atlanteans would bury their dead in stone mounds. And when they were finished in the area, they flooded Rock Lake to protect their dead. So that is what Frank Joseph believes the Rock Lake Pyramids are. The problem with this line of thought, and when we talk about pseudoscience, pseudoarchaeology, um, is it's obviously it's lacking evidence, and he admits that, and even in his books, 
uh, when he talks about Atlantis being in Wisconsin, he says that he gets a lot of the information from psychic archaeology. You know, I'm not sure how that can be believed. He also says he gets a lot of the information he got from an old shaman who, of course, was a stranger. So nobody can go back and find who this person was and corroborate anything he says. So now he has a partner that he works with named, named Mary Sutherland. She also has a lot of books. I've heard her on podcasts and such. And she, on her website, talks about the Rock Lake Pyramids as follows. Quote, millions of pounds of pure raw copper from Michigan's Upper Peninsula and Isle Royale were extensively mined in the time period between 3000 BC and 1200 BC. This very copper is responsible for the copper and Bronze Age cultures during that time. And when the mining operations ceased, so ended these great ages. How far back the history of this area goes is not known, but we can take it back to at least 3000 BC. During that era, the site was called Tyranina. It seems that Tyranina was one of the bases of operation for the early miners and traders of the copper mine in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. From Tyranina, the traders traveled down the Rock River to the Mississippi and then down to the Gulf of Mexico. From there, it was loaded and shipped across the sea. We suspect much of the copper and raw material gathered during the latter part of their time here went for the construction of King Solomon's mines. So she claimed to a discovery of an 18-foot-tall black pyramid with inscriptions, supposedly found while she was diving with previously mentioned Frank Joseph Collins, as you mentioned. According to Sutherland's website, structures were built by ancient culture to harness electromagnetic energy from a ley line. The ley line stretches from Mayan Citadel of Tikal through Lake Mills and into Mayville, Wisconsin, where as recently as 2013, crop circles appeared in a summer storm. Theories, as I've read and, and learned on shows that I enjoy, that the pyramids of Giza, as an example, even served as power stations to communicate with extraterrestrials into space. And that's that's kind of how I interpreted this information, that as far as the energy that these places are producing. Uh, her, also, her website also speaks of strange happenings of people seeing things that aren't there. Ice fishermen that can't start their chainsaws on the ice, but on shore they can, and that happens over and over again. Scuba divers can't get normally well-working cameras to work while they're trying to film these pyramids underwater. And other divers preparing to dive in waters near pyramids have spoken of feeling a strong sense of dread. Allegedly, also, there's one spot in the lake that's said to be bottomless. And according to stories, allegedly it's a home to multi-dimensional portals and that UFOs have been cited by people, whether they're legitimate sites or, or legitimate sources or not, going in and out of the water. So, you know, I've, I've heard Mary Sutherland on numerous other podcasts talking about their research in Rock Lake and the fact that they've found other pyramids. Uh, like you said, one was black and almost, almost glass-like. It had a, like a glass top, and they think it was obsidian. And uh, I also heard her talk that she, um, she believes that there was Egyptian hieroglyphs on one of them they're the only people that are finding this stuff that's the problem and they don't you know i guess from my interpretation is they don't have a camera have a camera that can record any of this stuff so obviously that calls a lot of that into question right and she's even got a quote that says quote it is apparent that there is an energy disturbance going on in the area 
strong enough to cause mechanical failure as well as affecting the human consciousness, which is alluding to what I've mentioned. Quote, uh, sorry, unquote. But a lot of these things, as I mentioned, are the th- kinds of things they address on shows like The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. So that's the kind of stuff that, whether you believe it or not, leads to possibly the presence of extraterrestrial or, or things that we don't have the technology or knowledge to understand at this point. But we're starting to be able to at least discuss and consider as a possibility. Now, to, to add on to that a little bit, there are there have been numerous TV shows that have tried to have episodes to catch these pyramids in Rock Lake. One was America Unearthed with Scott Walter, who's a well-known geologist. Scott took a like a kind of an individual um, submarine, a, a one-seater down there, and he couldn't see anything because it was too dark. So murky. Uh, there's another episode of a show called Digging for the Truth, which is a cool show. I used to watch that. It's not on anymore, I don't believe. I've heard of it. Um, they also took a boat out to Rock Lake to try to find these, and they had a lot of mechanical issues with their machines, and they couldn't find it. Uh, and also Unsolved Mysteries, and this was with Frank Joseph and Mary Sutherland. Unsolved Mysteries in, in the late 80s filmed an episode, came to Lake Mills in Rock Lake to film an episode about the Rock Lake Pyramids and never ran the episode. So now was that was that because they didn't believe it and there was nothing there to see, or was it because they didn't get any footage because none of their shit worked? You yeah, know? Well, so, and, and, right, so it's either what they came to see they didn't find or... Again, and I watched The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch because I am a cynic, I am a skeptic, but I do, for some reason, there's part of me who wants to believe this because I believe in our vast universe there's a lot more going on than just us. So there's also the possibility that these, if there's other beings here, they're able to control our technology to the point that we can't understand what's going on and it goes haywire. And that's where this electrical electromagnetic energy causes all these things to go haywire so that we can't record anything because we're not evolved enough to get past that. I, I believe that's a possibility and something we should consider. Maybe it's bunk, maybe it's haywire, maybe it's bullshit, but I believe maybe we're just not quite far enough along to have our technology get past those kinds of sensors that these other intelligent beings might have beyond us i I believe that there are places where where our electronics don't work i've been on investigations paranormally where that happens that's obviously something a pattern that happens in the bermuda triangle right you know and and some people speculate that that means there's portals to other dimensions and all that stuff and maybe that's a big leap but i just like considering it because i like thinking outside of the box when i have the opportunity to do it it doesn't mean it's anywhere near the truth maybe it's bullshit maybe it's fantasy but it's something we could consider right sure sure now the issue that i have with these two obviously with frank joseph and mary sutherland is you know their their explanations are so outlandish obviously people from atlantis coming here um, and mining copper, and they back it up with no evidence. They don't have, obviously, any evidence, and the things that they say they see, they don't have any recordings of it. So, you know, you can't take what they say seriously. And here's the other thing. Frank Joseph, who was born in 1944 in Chicago, he's still alive. Great guy, right? Right. Uh, he's actually better known as Frank Collin, as Mickey was saying. He's a former political activist and Midwest coordinator with the American Nazi Party later known as the National Socialist 
White People's Party. Now, after being ousted for being partly Jewish, believe it or not, even though he denied that. The irony. He denies he's Jewish after he's part of a white supremacist group. The irony. Uh, in 1970, Colin founded the National Socialist Party of America. Okay, so he's a... And he he's a hardcore Nazi. I mean, there's photos of this guy doing marches in Chicago. There's photos of this guy all over the place wearing his swastika. That's how he's most when, known. Yes, he's very well known. He's a, he's a He's not known... So much as an author uh, that he is a um, neo-Nazi, overt Nazi, and that's fine. Okay, you can be a shit person and still be good at your profession, right? A lot of people are. Okay, but the problem was that the Nazi thinking. You know, we we recounted uh, Frank Joseph, who he writes under Frank Joseph, by the way, not Frank Collin, because well, he changed his name and he just dropped his last name i should say joseph well he changed his name to to pen name frank joseph joseph in an attempt to reinvent himself and this is after he was eventually convicted of pedophilia right added to the resume bud and sent to prison being released three years later on good behavior which that just makes my skin crawl the fact that he was convicted of pedophilia and allowed to go three years later i mean that that's a petty crime but as i said to reinvent himself, he went from Frank Collin, as you say, to Frank Joseph to create another identity. And you're still a creepy person. So as we recounted a lot of his book titles before, he's written a lot about Atlantis. And he's written about, he believes, that the pyramids in Rock Lake were built by Atlanteans. Now, to tie that in with Nazi thinking, Nazi thinking, one of, one of the things that Nazis did all the time, and they still do it, neo-Nazis that are around today still do this, is they co-op other people's history and make it their own. And they do it to disparage those other people. Even the swastika wasn't there at the beginning. Right. So in Nazi thinking, the, the idea of the Aryan race means that it began with the existence of a distinct and superior race of Germanic people. So they believed that Atlantis was inhabited by a far superior race than any other race on Earth, and they, Germans, the Nazis, are descendants of them. That's Nazi thinking. Scientifically untrue, right? Uh, provably untrue, but that's what they believed. And they believed this so much that Hitler and his minions, especially Heinrich Himmler, believed this so much that they hired, they had an entire SS unit called the Anarby, the Ancestral Heritage, which included archaeologists and scientists that went searching around the world for the lost Aryans of Atlantis. Okay, now what did Atlanteans supposedly look like, according to Frank Joseph? And the information that he apparently got from a shaman who was a stranger Pale skin with hair like fire. Pale skin with red hair. They were white, according to Frank Joseph. So basically, he's doing what the Nazis did all the time, is they're stripping away the histories of indigenous people and saying, well, they didn't build those. White people built those. White people were, were here before the indigenous people here were. It's a classic white supremacist attitude. And it's a classic white supremacist tactic. And he's still using it today in publishing his books. 
So he's administering the Nazi habit of co-opting other people's history uh, to disparage them. The problem is that when somebody looks up Rock Lake today and they're interested in, you know, when the layperson looks up Rock, Rock Lake pyramids after they see America on Earth or something like that, you're going to see Frank Joseph's book pop up all over the place, all seven of them or whatever he wrote on this stuff. Two of the main ones being the Lost Pyramids of Rock Lake in Atlantis and Wisconsin. And having said all that, they they did use modern technology. He and his team used sonar systems to conduct sweeps of the lake. And th- th- they did capture anomalous images of what they believed were at least 10 man-made structures. And again, this is their beliefs based on images they caught. One structure was supposedly 100 feet long and made of large black stones. Joseph called this structure Limnatus Pyramid. And as I mentioned, he he speaks of this and all his other research in the Lost Pyramids of Rock Lake and Atlantis and Wisconsin. So you can read about it. You can speculate on it. A lot of it seems somewhat ridiculous, but again, this is one person's opinion, whether you agree with him or not. So now again, one, one, you know, person's shit personality doesn't necessarily... (laughs) Um, negate the legend of the of the pyramids, right? I mean, just because he says he's got some cockamamie ideas that they were from, a, you so know, you don't agree with? Th- him I, don't. Oh, I, I don't. Oh, am I going out of limb it's there? Not, then? It's not coming across in your messaging at all. You know, so the idea that uh, you know people from Atlantis were in Wisconsin building pyramids under a lake um, doesn't doesn't negate the fact that they might still actually be there, right? So let's you know, let's, yeah, his perspective might be skewed, and we don't necessarily agree with it. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't consider the possibility of the the phenomena in general. Even though, as like you say, his theories on the thing may be cockamamie and just trying to build this opinion of his outlook on the world, which most of us hopefully don't agree with. That doesn't mean that the basis of these phenomena don't exist. So again, don't let them negate the fact that they're that the pyramids may or may not exist in Rock Lake. But let's take these what we talked about back from the beginning and, and look at these on their merits. So we have duck hunters in Rock Lake in 1900 who hit, apparently hit these rock structures with their paddles. You know, they tell the world nothing really happens. Nobody really believes them. Again, they're saying they're, ra- they're natural structures, or they were filled from the, the, the railroad that were that was built. You know, nothing really happens when these structures are found in the lake in 1900. And then Victor Taylor comes around, and he starts digging into this stuff. Why? Why did he come around in 1936 to start digging into this stuff? Now, as Mickey said, he's a journalist, he was a writer, he was a radio host, right? That's why, isn't it? Is there more to it? There's a little more. So now he was also employed by the Federal Writers Program of the Works Progress Administration. So this was a program, obviously, uh, that was part of FDR's New Deal, which created all kinds of government-funded jobs in the 1930s, right? We're coming out of the Depression. Nobody had a job. Nobody was working. He was Nobody even money. he was that was even the inventor of like the city beautiful movement which I learned about in my college. Sure, the major. CCC camps. Yeah, you well, know. just trying to beautify America and and create a story that was more on the positive side, basically. Which you know I understand after coming out of the depression, that's kind of what you want to do to make people's psyches come to ease. You know, you had to get people had to work, right? They had to get money. So this this is what FDR came up with with the New Deal. 
is it created all these these jobs for people to work. The problem was, and the people that pushed back about that, is that it was all government money, right? It was all funded by the government. So the Federal Writers Program, which Victor Taylor was a part of, it was a program for out-of-work writers to basically create tourist guides, state guides, city guides. You can still find them today. You can still buy them today, actually. They were written in the 1930s. You can still find them today. It's almost like the triptychs that I, my family used when we were traveling. It's along those lines, just guides, promotions of the cities or the right. places you're going to visit, and here's the things you should go and see. So they, they would, these writers would, uh, they would research and, and dig up old local traditions, local folklore, research history, and le- local legends, and they, they basically put out these travel guides to promote tourism. Now, while he was doing this, it was also coming up on the centennial celebration of his hometown, Lake Mills. 1936, remember earlier we said, remember the date 1836 when it was founded. So 1936, he's working on these tour guides to drum up tourism to get to Lake Mills, right? So this is when he heard he hears the legend of the Rock Lake Pyramids, and I believe... Um, well, most people believe now that he drummed up the legend of the Rock Lake Pyramids for the coming centennial celebration, which was going to be a big deal for that little town. Now, one of the things remember that he said was that he heard through a lot of local native legends about stone teepees under the lake. But, you know, modern searches for that have come up with nothing. There doesn't seem to be any written accounts of anything like that. But he himself believed that the pyramids were sacrificial altars, as we mentioned before, too. That's the theory that he bought into. You know, as a matter of fact, there was a uh, the book called The Reminiscent History of the Village and Town of Lake Mills, written in the mid-1800s by the town's founder, Joseph Key's son. Wait for it. Alicia, Alicia Keys. Keys. Not that one. This is a man. They mention many accounts of native legends and many accounts of interactions with natives. Like you say, you mentioned interactions with local Native Americans and Estelon at the time, just in his research. And again, no mention of any legend being shared of the stone teepees or in or around the lake at all. So those Native American legends and Native American, you know, reminiscences of stone teepees under Rock Lake um, aren't found anymore today. So we don't know where he got that. Did he come up with it? Did he make it up? We don't know. But it doesn't seem to be true anymore today. He also wrote articles, Taylor, also wrote articles about the centennial, the upcoming centennial, several years prior to this in 1932, 1934, Never mentions Rock Lake Pyramids at all. So now remember, he did bring this information to Charles Brown, who was the founder of the Wisconsin Archaeological Society. As we already mentioned, yeah. And he was also, coincidentally, or maybe not, the director of the local federal writers program. So he worked for him. Right. Taylor worked under Charles Brown. Sure. So you would think Charles Brown would surely want to run with this, right? If there was any validity to it at all. He was the first to disregard. Right. If So if there was any possibility that these pyramids could be ancient, you would think that Charles Brown, the director of the local federal writers program in which Taylor was, was writing under. And the founder, as you mentioned before, of Wisconsin Archaeological Society. Right. This guy was interested in this stuff, and that's why he was working for him. But he didn't believe that. He was the biggest and the first 
to disregard all these claims. So he thought that they were built by the Finch gang, which is interesting. So the Finches were actually a family. They were a family of horse thieves, thugs, basically, at the day in the day. And they were hiding out in the area immediately south of Rock Lake. And uh, in the early 1840s, right pre-Civil War, and the, the fighting Finches is what they were <laughs> is what they were known as. And they apparently terrorized Rock and Jefferson counties, stealing horses and near and living in a nearby marshland. Yeah, and, and basically beating and pillaging the entire area, like and, Vikings almost. And, which is and this is this is true. So there has been archaeological evidence found of a whole bunch of horse skeletons uh, in the area in which they were supposedly hiding out. So we do know that they were there. So what Brown believed is he believed that these rocks under Rock Lake, these structures were built by the Finch gang to hide their loot, to hide everything they stole from people and then submerge them underwater or they got submerged under the water. These are pretty tall structures for one little family to create just to hide stuff though. Right. I mean, that sounds kind of ridiculous in its own right. So no credence to the notion by him at all that they were built by the ancients. Now, which is, I mean, the, the point I'm making is it's strange he didn't want to believe this story, but the story he surmises seems almost as ridiculous. Like, apparently these structures are so tall that they'd actually come above the water, and, they, and these, this Finch family built them so high just to hide some loot. Whether it was dead horses or not, it seems it's almost impossible that they would have built these structures so large for that reason. And people back then were questioning that as well. They were questioning both theories. And there's an article again in 1936. This is after Taylor um, had had kind of brought this legend back up. And here's an article in the Wisconsin State Journal of March 4th, 1936. The headline is Pyramids or What? <laughs> Question mark. <laughs> Quote, when three stone pyramids on the bottom of Rock Lake were reported by Claude Wilson, Lake Mills fisherman, it was first believed by Victor Taylor of the state WPA Writers Project that they had been constructed by the ancient Aztalan Indians and were used for religious ceremonies. Dr. Charles Brown of the State Historical Museum later exploded that theory when he declared that the pyramids were not Indian mounds at all, but rock caches were the Finch family a band of frontier day desperados hid their loot. Local records in turn cast doubt on this explanation. So, quote, although the Finch family did terrorize the Jefferson County farmers on their wild sprees, no robberies were ever actually laid at their door, according to the records. The short while that they lived in the vicinity of Lake Mills makes it very unlikely that they could have secreted any loot in Rock Lake. Many here believe that the rock piles are nothing more than natural glacial deposits. So this is right after Taylor brought this back to the attention of these supposed rock pyramids in Rock Lake. And even the town, a month later, didn't believe it. So they don't believe they're pyramids. They just believed, again, that they were natural glacial formations or fill put there by the construction of the railroad. So now what about Max Eugene Knoll, right? The expert diver of his day. He went down and apparently saw them. Got notoriety for that, right? And soon after, he got notoriety. A famous Wisconsin diver. I mean, so he's a he's a credible source who who does this, and people believed what he was doing because it seemed like he didn't have an other agenda. So for him to say that he reported seeing structure that looked like an upside down ice cream cone 
tall conical stone shaped he believed was man-made and then to write that letter to victor taylor it it makes me wonder why somebody who's such a credible source would would have this agenda or belief for any reason other than promote it you know what i mean like promote promote it as well as himself Right. Well, I guess that's why. So, right. so when because I, I wanted to believe that guy from what I read. When he went down and supposedly found these, he got notoriety for that. It be got it got back in the news, right? And he was already a well-known diver, but soon after Wisconsin. that, he breaks the record that Mickey was talking about, 420 feet off the coast of Port Washington. Starts his own business selling diving gear. So he was selling himself. Becomes very famous for diving famous shipwrecks. I think he dove the Lusitania and stuff. And then he went on a a lecture circuit and became super famous as, you know, Joe Scuba Diver. So it was a foundation. It was promoting himself. So now, again, he always said that he was going to come back, right? I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back. He never, never found the time. He never did. And although he did talk about this on his lecture circuit, he started talking about it a lot. And then as time went on, he would talk about it less and less and less, and it just, he lost interest in it. So what did he see when he was down there? Which means, yeah, if it if it was legit, you think you'd lump on to that concept. Imagine finding pyramids in a lake in right. Wisconsin, and you're just going to... Eh. If you're trying to find fame, as this guy obviously was, you'd think you'd, that would be the thing you'd want to claim to discover. So now he was killed in a car accident in 1960. You can hear the disappointment in my voice. People still kind of glob on today saying, well, he wanted to come back, but he never got the chance because he was killed in a car accident. That was 25 years later. He never came back. He didn't see anything, in my opinion, that he believed was a real pyramid. Now let's go back to, to, to our buddy Frank Joseph. After he's kicked out of the party. As Mickey said before, he's actually arrested and convicted of pedophilia, and he goes to prison. Now, while in prison, and I I think this is worthy of mentioning because I think it has a lot to do with where we are today. While he's in prison, he meets a prison guard there named Russell Burroughs. Russell Burroughs became famous himself, and he's known as a, quote, pseudo-archaeological hoax, known as Burroughs Cave, which he apparently discovered in 1982, while hunting along the Little Wabash River in Illinois. So Russell Burroughs said that he fell into a cave after stepping on a large stone that tilted sideways. Now he had apparently, according to him, discovered a cave that within it resembled an Egyptian tomb filled with gold and treasures along with artifacts relating to several different ancient cultures. Many artifacts reportedly had inscriptions in various ancient languages, such as Phoenician, Ancient Hebrew, and Iberian in Illinois, right? Burroughs kept the location of this find secret, save for one person, Frank Joseph Collin. Now, Burroughs had led Collin there in 1983, apparently, saying, you know, look at this awesome cave that I found. Hmm. And again, Burroughs... You think that's how that conversation went down? Sure. Now, I got found an awesome cave. You want to come with me and find it? So he he so Burroughs says I found this cave in Illinois. I fell in. It looks like an Egyptian tomb, and it's got all kinds of ancient dialects written around it. It's got gold in it and all this stuff. So obviously, academic archaeologists hear this and they're like, "Whoa, dude, we want to check that out." So again, I bet ac- you that's how they said that. Academia too. is there, 
and they want to say, show us your cave. And he says, no, you can't see it because he was afraid that people would steal the loot. And so he goes on and he dynamites it. That part I don't understand. If, you, if you're hiding something that you want to find for yourself, okay, I, I can understand the mentality, but blowing it up, meaning no one gets it, that's... He did pull some of the quote-unquote artifacts out of it, which were proven to be hoaxes. And actually, it was after he was basically known to be a fraud, proven to be a fraud, that's when he dynamited it. So I should have said that differently. Mm. But again, academia was there. And they said, they were taking him seriously, and they said, show us your cave. And he said no, and he blew it up. Now, one of the things Frank Joseph always talks about in his writings is how, quote-unquote, mainstream academia, mainstream archaeologists, don't give credence to any of this stuff. And, you know, and I, actually, I would tend to, t- tend to agree with them a lot. You know, when, when things are found in archaeology, when things are found in history that don't necessarily... Uh, fit with the already known history all right the narrative it doesn't adhere to what we already know then people are so quick to discredit it right and and it this is it's proven fact that um archaeologists and historians in the past i'm not saying they do it today but in the past have buried this stuff pun intended they've buried literally buried discoveries that have gone against the narrative grain but not in this case. Including the Illuminati and some of these groups that supposedly know more about the history of the world than anybody, allegedly. But in in the case of the Rock Lake Pyramids, that's not true, because 25 years before Frank Joseph was writing his books, what we know as mainstream academia had already investigated the Rock Lake Pyramids and did give them the attention I think that they deserved. So work was conducted in 1960 and 61, culminating in an article, The Underwater Search for Pyramids in Rock Lake, Jefferson County, published in the Wisconsin Archaeologist in 1962. This It was a survey of a lake conducted by officials from the Milwaukee Public Museum led by director Dr. Stephen Morhage. His team also included Robert Ritzenthaler, curator of anthropology, and diver Lon Miracle, who ended up actually writing that article. They used Miracle's team of divers from Milwaukee-based dive club known as the Midwest Amphibians. In 1962, as a result of their research, they published an article in volume 43 of number 3 of Wisconsin Archaeological Journal. As Scott mentioned, the underwater search for pyramids in Lake Rock Lake, Jefferson County. Their extensive work turned up no sign of the structures. They used toad depth finder to get contour of bottom of the lake within research areas. They also used sonar to pinpoint diving points. They concluded that what people mistook for pyramids were actually glacial deposits left behind when the lake was formed 10,000 years ago, as we've already mentioned. Quote, the dumping of concentrations of gravel or rock as the ice block melts during the lake building stage is not unusual. And for some of these to have roughly pyramidal shape is not difficult to conceive with silt they could assume a man-made look. The evidence for the geological explanation is so overwhelming and the man-made theory so remote that no doubt remains in the mind of the writer, period, unquote. So mainstream academia did give this the attention that it warranted. They spent two years researching that lake for these pyramids. 
They contacted the Wilson brothers, the two that initially hit the structures while they were duck hunting. They, and I, be- I believe they wanted to believe. They used sonar. Two years they spent. All the technology they could find, I believe they wanted to believe. There's no question that the state took this seriously. The Milwaukee Public Museum and the state took this seriously. So well, the notion... I mean, they have a dive club. That's right? what That's what a dive club is trying to do, find this stuff that not only will make them famous, but will change history and change what we know as history. I, I believe, as I said now three times, they wanted to believe. And when they could not prove it, it's disappointing. So the notion that mainstream archaeologists or mainstream academia didn't didn't take this seriously isn't isn't true they did do their due diligence there there comes a time where you know in my opinion you have to take the evidence for what the evidence says people want to believe in in things like mickey said they wanted to believe i think a lot of people want to believe i think frank joseph wants to believe i think uh victor taylor wanted to believe but at some point you have to look at the evidence and you have to say this is this true or is this not we've been hearing about pyramids in Rock Lake our entire lives, obviously. This started in 1900. So nothing, obviously, you know, being being found first in 1900 with the advanced advancements in technology that we have today, the fact that these things couldn't be found because the water's dirty just doesn't hold water. Right. And we've got enough, even today, contemporary researchers use the grainy sonar images to claim presence of many things, including dinosaur bones, burials, an effigy mound, as Scott mentioned earlier, that's shaped like a turtle, a headless man, and other fuzzy, indecipherable evidence of a lost city or necropolis. And it's just not been able to be proven. And you can hear the disappointment in my voice. I like believing in the weird and the twisted. I like... I like believing there's a possibility of it because i think there's even so many things in our universe that we don't understand we're starting to understand but right here on our planet especially in the waters there are so many things in our waters the great lakes the oceans especially that we still have no knowledge of whether there's you know ulterior life there's species we don't know about maybe even ancient alien species because i kind of want to believe in that who knows it's all out there we're still learning we, we have the technology, we're starting to get to the point where we can even discuss it without being called crazy, but without the proof, as Scott mentioned, you, you can't be adamant about it and say, it's true, because that's going to make you crazy even to this day. We, we need the proof, but the fact that we can talk about it is what makes my twisted mind so interested and intrigued. I, I want to know more about it. I want to know if it's true. I want to know... That what we know isn't true, I, I guess, is a weird way to say it. There's so much we think we know, and we've proven throughout history what we thought we knew was not true. And I'm just always waiting for the next turn on that kind of thing. And it's 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 intriguing, and that's what makes people explorers and discoverers. And that's that's what makes, it's the curiosity of the mind, is what it comes down to. And I, that's what makes our species different than others, in my opinion. And and I think I think that's a good term, Mick. I think curiosity of the mind gets shut down far too much in our accepted scientific communities. I think the term, as we've said a lot on the, on this show, pseudoscience or pseudoarchaeology is thrown around too much. It sounds like a detrimental term. You know, I think we bring up Frank Joseph 
and the kind of outlandish claims that him and Mary Sutherland have described, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go on record in saying I think it's warranted in that fact because I don't believe he believe, he even believes what he's saying. He was trying. He has an agenda. But he yeah, he was trying to sell himself. He wasn't trying to find the like like the curse of Oak Island. Those guys are trying to find history. Yeah, they want to find treasure. But they're trying to find the true history. We, we've been told these things. And, and Rick Lagina will tell you that over and over. It's more about the story. They want to know the true story, not just what we've been told, because that's what the stories have told us. And if, if, if you look at you know these shows that are popular on TV, as Mickey said, The Curse of Oak Island, Ancient Aliens, Skinwalker Ranch, these are super the search for the, the, the popular shows right because right? people want to know this stuff that maybe it's it's changing our history and they're very divisive the uh quote-unquote mainstream archaeologists hate those shows of course they do and you know i think a lot of the blame if you want to call it that should go to them because they they're not transparent and they've looked down on amateur archaeologists or hobbyists for decades right with snarky attitudes cuz they don't you don't have my experience or exactly. my knowledge. I think they they deserve a lot of the blame of the kind of explosion of quote unquote pseudo archaeology and the popularity of it. I do think however some pseudo pseudo archaeology when we're talking about guys like Frank Joseph is harmful because what Frank Joseph is saying is is he's disparaging indigenous people and the work that they've done. There were indigenous people for thousands and thousands of years all around where we are now. They built things. They had imaginations. They had knowledge. They had tools. They were trying to evolve our species, whereas that guy himself was all about self-promotion. And for him and others like him, he's not... The only one. No, no. Right. I mean, Especially these days. Pseudo-archaeology is, is, is a money-making business. Pseudo-sciences in general. Sure. When it's not done correctly and when it's done in disrespectful ways, I think are harmful. And I think they deserve to be called out. Sure. But... But that's part of science. Sure it is. And But I, I would hold back on that a little bit when we're talking about... As Mickey said, when you look at shows like The Curse of Oak Island, I think those guys have good intentions. Oh, those guys really... uh, Marty is a skeptic. Rick, and I I watch that show religiously, Rick, he's got a passion. It's not about the treasure. It's about the history and learning that what we know is not the truth because, well, as they say, the truth is out there, but we don't always necessarily know it, but... By word of mouth, we think we do. I, I just love these stories that prove that what we know isn't the truth. It's it's intriguing. It's interesting. And that's the human mind that keeps us searching for this but, ultimate truth. But again, it's, it's the scientific community that makes shows like that exactly. popular. Because signs of a pre-Columbian occupation on Oak Island goes against everything that we've ever learned about right. North American history. Doesn't but that doesn't mean it's right. That doesn't mean what we've learned is right. Exactly. But and and I think that show has already um I think that show has already even though they they haven't found treasure it's and frustrating. I don't think they will find treasure. So, well, cuz you think you'd learned about it by now, right? I think they've already completed their goal because it's they've proven. I don't know how you can't say it's proven 
that there's too much evidence. Even there, again, they're not going to find a treasure, but there is more than enough evidence to say without a doubt that there is pre-Columbian occupation on Oak Island well, prior well, to 1500. Many different cultures, like the Knights Templar, I mean, from Spain, from England, I mean, from, from North America itself, they think there's stories that go down to like 1400s. And we're just using that show as an example, but that's the point we're trying to make. What we think we know, right. like when the world was flat, <laughs> we learned we were wrong. And that's that's what humans, as tired of humans as I get at times, because we're so petty and judgmental, that's what we're trying to do with our creative minds and our curiosity is evolve and learn the truth that that's something that we have that other species don't seem to is the search for the ultimate truth and that's amazing to me amen brother